Welcome on in to the Not Dead Yet podcast. I'm your host, John Mason Brink. I'm here with my good friend, Tim Ward. Tim, how you doing, buddy? JP, I'm doing excellent. We are excited about our, our, our next guest. Uh, but first, I just want to talk about, uh, you know, we have the uh, Labor Day weekend coming up. And Tim, what do you got planned for the big weekend? Well, it's Derby weekend. And with any Derby weekend, I will be cel- my wife and I will be celebrating in front of the TV. As you know, I'm a avid horsey fan. Um, and what goes better than whiskey and bourbon than the Kentucky Derby? So I've got right, some friends they, coming over, and we will be celebrating on Saturday watching the Derby. That's they, about the extent of it. They shifted the Derby to later in the year. That's right. I they totally did. forgot about that. Yep, they did. So any mint juleps on the menu? I'm not a mint fan, of course, so no mint juleps for me, but I'm sure there will be some poured. I will be drinking probably some rye Manhattans, maybe a Woodford on the rocks here and there. But um, I found a new whiskey that I like that I'm sure we're going to be talking at some point about tonight. Getting back to your point about uh, relaxing with some whiskey, we have a special guest. He is Nick Nagley, co-owner of Whiskey Acres. Distilling Company in DeKalb, Illinois. Nick, how you doing today, buddy? I'm chasing the dream, guys. How are you? <laughs> We're doing good. For those who aren't familiar, Whiskey Acres grows their own corn, wheat, and rye and distills it into bourbon, rye, and vodka. They make it, sell it, and ensure they have all the things needed to do both. They are proudly made from seed to spirit. They are located in DeKalb, Illinois, close to my hometown. It just got me thinking about... Uh, the whole pandemic uh, about six, seven months ago and whiskey acres kind of did a pretty admirable thing is that they kind of changed processing from distilling, well, alcohol, well, not alcohol, but uh, you know, the, the spirits of vodka and rye and, and whiskey, and they shifted into making hand sanitizer, which was pretty cool. You know, it's a solid marketing move. I, I would have to say, but in its own right, but were you doing this out of necessity and end user demand as well, Nick? <laughs> we figured that out as we went, uh, the answer to those questions. But hey, but before we, we get into those details, one thing I want to make sure it's clear is that when we, we got into hand sanitizer, we started sanitizer and continued making whiskey. And that's important for our friends out there who have any concern about a supply hiccup. That's um, right. <laughs> because if we quit making it today, we wouldn't have anything to drink five years from now. So so we, uh, we have a couple different shifts and we dedicated one shift to continue making the stuff that we can enjoy five years from now. And we dedicated the second shift to managing the process of, uh, of killing the germs of today. The answer to your question is, Jamie, my, my business partner and I happened to be heading back from um, or to and from Nebraska. Uh, I think it was like March 11th through the 13th when really the chaos kind of hit the United States. And on the way there that morning at 7 a.m., we had the conversation of, you know, are we going to have to do anything with the distillery? Should we do anything along the hand sanitizer line? Really more of a brainstorm, you know, looking ahead to the seven hours in the truck together. We got on the phone with our management team and and kind of posed the questions to them to see how they felt about, you know, continuing operations in the visitor center. That that was a, a morning, a Wednesday morning call. And I think by Wednesday evening, Jamie and I had made the decision that we were going to proactively close our facilities to kind of get ahead of, of what we thought was going to be impending gov- government intervention. And, mm-hmm. and boy, were we ever right on that one. On the drive home, you know, we started making announcements to the public that, you know, we're going to, we're going to close for a little while to kind of let things settle. And, and then we began the conversation of, 
are we going to do hand sanitizer? And, you know, Jamie's driving and I'm doing the Googling and, and, you know, what are the ingredients you need to make hand sanitizer? And, and at the time, the, the version of hand sanitizer we knew was aloe vera and alcohol, just to kind of make it oversimplified. Mm-hmm. And, and I found a 55-gallon drum of aloe vera. And Jamie and I talked it through and essentially said, there's no way in hell we're going we're gonna to make enough hand sanitizer that we'll go through a 55-gallon drum. And then I maybe found five or 10 gallons of it. And, and it was more expensive than we thought was worth even, even getting involved in. So we drove back to Illinois. We locked the doors of the visitor center and everyone went home to quarantine. Two, three days later, the, the government started making some allowances for, um, for hand sanitizer to be produced by distilleries. You know, that got our attention. And then, you know, quite frankly, an innumerable amount of folks started reaching out to us asking if we would do it. So Jamie and I decided, hey, let's, let's do it. And, uh, and it was more to just kind of meet a local demand, pass some, some time in a proactive way, and, and honestly, to get a little publicity and, and you know, community um, spirit around the project. That first batch we did was 175 gallons, mm-hmm. and it was gone the next day. Wow. We transitioned transition from 175 gallons to doing about 6,000 gallons a week. Wow. That's so, pretty impressive. Well, to go back, you, you said you were actually making hand sanitizer and still making the whiskey and the vodka in a separate still, I would assume, but that's how the process still worked. Hand sanitizer, um, you know, the definition of hand sanitizer really kind of varies by product, but, but really it's, it, it needs to be at least 60% alcohol. Mm-hmm. But then it, it became very specific for us that the, the TTB, which is a tax and trade bureau, made allowances for us to to utilize alcohol that was not going to be taxed as, as consumable alcohol. And then just as importantly, the FDA came out with a very specific, we'll call it prescription or ingredient list for what we could do to make hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. And it was alcohol. It was glycerin. Basically, glycerin makes it stick to your hands and, uh, and hydrogen peroxide, which essentially kills anything else that the alcohol doesn't. And that's, that's, uh, that's what our first batch was moved down the, the road another week or two, the FDA changed the ingredients and added two, two things that are called denaturants. And, and basically, that's a fancy way for saying that it makes the alcohol unconsumable. It just, it, it turns it into to this most bitter, awful tasting thing. But the challenge was uh, one of the ingredients that you could only buy in, in 6,000 gallon semi-loads and, and we needed about 10 gallons. And mm-hmm. so we actually, we reached out to our congressman and, and explained to him that, you know, once you denature something with one ingredient, you don't necessarily need to denature it with a second. And, uh, he reached out to, uh, the task force, the COVID-19 task force. And, and I, as I understand it, eventually talked to vice president Pence, who eventually spoke with, um, someone of sub- substantial importance at the FDA to, to explain to them the predicament they put us in, put the industry in, I should say. And uh, not long after that, the FDA said, okay, you can choose one or the other. And we chose the one that, that was reasonable and, and, and available. And away we went. So I would assume that there's uh, other uh, distilleries I've, I've seen in other states that are, I, I don't know if they're following in your footsteps, but they're kind of doing the same thing. So where are you six months later? Are you still producing hand sanitizer? We're trying to get out of the hand sanitizer business. Are you? <laughs> well, I think it would, I, I don't know. I think it'd be kind of cool to have, you know, still kind of sell it in a small batch and have it. I don't know where you would sell it or. That, that's actually exactly what we're doing. We've got bottles, yeah. you know, in the, in the tasting room 
it's know, kind of a novelty thing. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And we, we've got inventory, but, but we, we made a lot and, and uh, have it so that we can package it as needed. But mm-hmm. we're, we really want to focus on, on the long-term part of the business and, and being able to, uh, you know, most importantly make whiskey that we can enjoy five years from now. That's a, that's a cool story. And, uh, you know, kudos to you guys for kind of shifting on the fly and thinking about doing that just on a ride home from, from Nebraska. That's pretty I, cool. I'll add one, one little kind of fun detail that was a, a wow moment was, you know, I, I told you the details of, of our, our Congressman, uh, King Kinzinger reaching out to the, um, the task force. And, and not long after that, we actually got a call from somebody saying that uh, they were calling on behalf of uh, vice president Pence to mm-hmm. uh, secure hand sanitizer for the secret service. Wow. So we sent, we made sure we had some extra clean batches. <laughs> we set that way. <laughs> Very impressive. Uh, that and, is you know, cool, that was, man. That was, that was a, I don't know, an eye opening, a humbling and exciting and exhausting moment for, for the team. It, it, and, and it really made us feel like we were doing something. And, and when I say we, so, you know, I mentioned Jamie, my business partner mm-hmm. and, uh, and his father, Jim, um, you know, we're, we're the three co-founders. We've got a team. Rob is our, our head distiller and, and he, he's important to this process because he kept the still going for, for the, the whiskey. Then, uh, then we've got Eric, who's our assistant distiller, who we, we nicknamed the sanitizer. And, uh, <laughs> and he, he managed, you know, the entire production line of, of getting alcohol transition from, from just consumable alcohol into um, usable sanitizer uh, that met the FDA requirements. And then we have this great team of uh, our front of house uh, management team that was running the, um, the visitor center, you know, on, on March 11th. That, mm-hmm. that was willing to commit. Uh, I think the biggest thing was they were willing to commit to being safe. And uh, they were on our, you know, the cliche term is the quarantine. And Lisa, Lisa Miller and Jen Yeager, Trish Hayden and um, Julia uh, Komenyeki every day showed up. And, you know, they would used to show up to work and put a smile on their face and, and make fantastic cocktails for our guests. Mm-hmm. And, and in this time, they, they showed up and filled milk jugs full of hand sanitizer for six hours a day and did it with not a scowl on their face and appreciate really recognize the moment for the business yeah. and the greater good. I'm not sure why I saw them, but I did see pictures of um, the early, early on after that, that time period of March 11th through the 20th, sometime around there. I saw pictures of the employees and people that worked there that were really dedicated to, you know, kind of shifting gears and, and, like you said, bottling hand sanitizer and doing whatever they could to help the business. I think that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, we, we have a great team. We're, we're very blessed. Well, Nick, it's five o'clock somewhere. Uh, we are taping this sh- podcast uh, a little after five. I, I was able to find some research material earlier today, and I am sipping on some of this wonderful copper. I would consider it a little sweet. A little heavier on the nose, a little cinnamon, kind of corny, a very good corn flavor with my limited palate. When people listen to this, hopefully they'll try to find out where uh, Whiskey Acres Distilling Company is located and go visit, or if they can find it in their local uh, establishments. Want to hear a little bit about you. Give us a little big background, how you got to be where you are today. How did you end up setting up the distillery and why in DeKalb? Well, I just want to make sure you know you're not drinking alone. So just in case you had any issues <laughs> there. 
but uh, you know, to answer your question, so I, uh, I'm one of the three co-founders. And again, I, I earlier mentioned Jim and, and Jamie Walter and, and their names, I think will answer one of your questions of the why and the kelp. Jim is a, uh, a fourth generation farmer, and this is his 52nd year of, of farming the land that his uh, father established in 1936. Jamie, his son, uh, has been back um, on the farm with Jim for about the last 20, maybe a little bit more than 20 years. Uh, both Jim and Jamie are, uh, are proud University of Illinois alums, uh, along with me. ILL. Uh, I and I. I am a proud fifth generation farmer. My, my family hails from um, Sheldon, Illinois, where uh, the family has been there in some form or fashion, uh, turning soil since the 1860s. And so, so Whiskey Acres for the three of us was really uh, a way for three farmers to turn the high quality grain that, uh, that Jim and Jamie are growing on their family farm in DeKalb into something that is, uh, is directly marketable and relatable to consumers. You know, as farmers, we often have, uh, have turned on the tractor and gone out to the field and, and, and raised corn and done it very quietly. And, and that corn goes to, to cows and fuel ethanol and fiber and sweetener and all kinds of things that the consumer doesn't really appreciate the work and the quality that goes into it. Whiskey Acres was really a way for us to take some of the highest quality grain and very specifically corn that's quite frankly grown in the world and turn into something that uh, that we can share and be proud of and, and really allow the consumers to recognize that there's a difference between, you know, commodity corn and, and high quality grain that, that we're growing. You know, the, the phrase, all corn is not created equal, really, really rings true. And, and Whiskey Acres is a way for us to showcase that. Well, speaking of Whiskey Acres, would you consider it a craft distillery? And if so, why? But you ask a good question. And, and so there is not, that I'm aware of, not a a Webster's Dictionary term that, that's black and white of, of craft distillery. From a personal standpoint, the, my, the way I look at, at uh, how do you define craft is, is can you go meet the person who made it? Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, for layman's terms, I, I don't even know what that means. What is, Tim, what, or what does that mean, craft distillery? Well, that's what I'm, I'm asking Nick. <laughs> I, craft distillery, is, is it small batch? And I think like Nick mentioned, you know, we're, I know there are official terms and I know in Kentucky there are f- official terms of what can and cannot be a craft distillery. So I'm, I'm just curious from Nick's standpoint, so do they, I'll, I'll does tell he, you, this, the way that the state of Illinois looks at it is a craft distillery uh, makes less than a hundred thousand gallons of, of um, distilled spirits a year. So there, there's your, there's your state of Illinois legal definition of it. There is not a legal definition at the federal level. They don't care how big or how small you are. They just want to make sure you pay your taxes on what you make. Um, you know, but from a consumer standpoint, I think the consumer is looking for how is it scaled? How's the quality? Are they allowed to have some creativity? You know, because I think when you get to sort of the mass produced stuff, uh, they get in a lane and they make something that, that the way they make whiskey today has to be the way they made it in 1963. We, we call ourselves a craft distiller, but more importantly, we call ourselves an estate distillery, which means that we grow the grains that we we uh, utilize uh, in the distillery. Being small, being craft allows us to really utilize the resources uh, in terms of, of grains, in terms of creativity, and create unique products uh, and high quality products. And so craft to me means quality, means consistency, means creativity, and really means transparency. Yeah, much like what John mentioned in the beginning, it's not farm to table, it's seed to spirit. So, I, you know, that's that's pretty impressive. Uh, real quick, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned earlier just the importance of corn. Give us a little 
background on the types of corns or why corns make such a difference? Well, so let's let's talk about what whiskey is and then what bourbon is. So, so whiskey is a distilled spirit. This is the broad definition. Whiskey is a distilled spirit that has to be distilled from grain. Whiskey can be made anywhere by anyone from any grain as long as it's distilled at or below 160 proof or, or 80% alcohol. Then you get into types of whiskey. And, and so there's types of whiskey that would include bourbon whiskey or rye whiskey, uh, scotch whiskey, Canadian whiskey, Irish whiskey. And each one of those comes with secondary requirements besides just being made from grain. So I'll speak to bourbon. Bourbon has to be made from grain and very specifically at least 51% corn. The other 49% can be corn or any combination of any grain. Uh, with bourbon whiskey has to be made in the United States, has to be distilled at or below 160 proof, has to be aged in charred new American white oak barrels. And if you want to call it a, a straight bourbon, it has to be in those barrels uh, for at least two years. And when it goes in those barrels, it has to be at least, I should say, no higher than 125 proof. One thing that I think is important in, in this sort of definition of bourbon that you did not hear me say is that bourbon has to be made in Kentucky. Actually, It's a, a, kind a fallacy of a fun, that most people it's, believe. It, it's a fallacy. The fact of the matter is there was more whiskey made in Peoria, Illinois, pre-prohibition than anywhere else in the world. And, and the reason was Peoria had water, Peoria had a river, and Peoria had a hell of a lot of corn. Yep. So to get back to the answer to your question, why does corn matter? Well, corn is the number one ingredient in bourbon. So it doesn't matter what you're, whether you're baking cookies or making wine or whatever, the ingredients matter. And so we have, we have the ability to not only grow some of the best corn as an ingredient in the world, but we have the ability to, um, to, to trial and error. So as a farmer, every year we're inundated with opportunities to buy different varieties of seed from different suppliers. Those oper the, the decisions that we make as farmers are often about how can we grow the most amount of corn on a given acre. Because when, when I go to harvest, I'm going to blend my corn with your corn and, and, and anybody else's. That's, it's all going to get intermingled at, at the, the local grain elevator that's, that's going to get sold to be turned into fuel ethanol or, you know, what are the other end products there are. And there's, there's no incentive there to, um, to identity preserve those corn genetics. I can tell you from our standpoint, some corns that don't yield as much from the farmer standpoint, in many cases, make superior quality from a whiskey standpoint. And, and we have dug into this so much that our, our head distiller, Rob, uh, has spent the last two years finishing his master's degree from Harriet, Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, Scotland. And his thesis is on how varietals of corn affect the flavor of whiskey. And so the answer to your question is the reason it's important is because it's, it's a main ingredient and, and ingredients matter. And the reason we showcase it is because we're blessed with the ability to actually identity preserve those ingredients from the field to the fermenter, to the still, to the barrel, and finally to the bottle. And most, most places that are, are larger, most places that don't have a farm, number one, and, and number two, if they do have access, they just, they don't have the ability to, to kind of streamline and, and manage that from, from seed to spirit. Excellent. What real quick, you talked a little bit earlier with John about the production process of the hand sanitizer. What is, uh, how often do you, I mean, I'm sure you make whiskey daily, but what is the process and what might be a typical day for Nick at whiskey acres? <laughs> well, there, there's no such thing as typical. 
in, in the event that one of our distillers is sick, uh, I'm, I'm the next guy on deck to, uh, to run the still. So for the first almost two years or so, uh, I, I was the guy running the still and kind of like the Dunkin' Donuts guy, you got to get up to make the coffee, you got to get up to make the whiskey. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun and absolutely imperative for, for my role in the business uh, to understand the process from soup to nuts. So now my, you know, my day-to-day is still it's managing operations to make sure that, that our distilling team has all the things they need to make whiskey every day. And then I manage the relationship with our distributor to make sure that, that our, our production side is getting them the product they need from a sales side. And so in a given day, I might be doing um, sales meetings with, with uh, liquor buyers at, at uh, liquor stores or restaurants, doing promotional work, sniffing out new, um, new production uh, ideas, trying to talk with, with suppliers on new barrels or ordering toilet paper. My, my role is really just kind of, if it needs to be done, make sure it's done and make sure we can make whiskey today, tomorrow and the next day. One hey, of the, Nick, uh, go ahead, John. What's your personal relationship with whiskey? I mean, have you always had an affinity towards it? Uh, you know, since you became of legal drinking age, or maybe maybe a little before that. I'm not sure, no, but <laughs> uh, no. I, I mean, I, I'd be very honest with you. I, I don't have some sort of cliche story that says, you know, I, my first sip of whiskey was the greatest thing I ever had, and I knew I, I always wanted to be a part of that. Yeah. My first sip of whiskey I ever had got me in a lot of trouble, uh, yeah. and it was and it wasn't good stuff either. <laughs> But, but my, my, I can, my moment. So, you know, I think you asked a little bit about my, my background. So I, I think I mentioned earlier, I went to the university of Illinois, proud, proud of university alumni from there. I, I got a job working at a, a company called Weber Shandwick. I did a lot of work oh, corporate yeah. communications. One, uh, I was, I, I got to travel kind of the Midwest on behalf of a couple of clients. I got to work in the seed industry. I got to work in the grain procurement business, see kind of the, the, the sausage making process in those. But when I was in the Chicago office, I I was given the opportunity to kind of create, I don't remember if we call them first Fridays or what, but but uh, one of our managers said, Nick, let's have some fun. You're in charge. And so I did I did around the world in, in offices. And so everyone had had an, an office with a different theme, generally cocktail based uh, or alcohol based. And, and one of our managers, John Mose, I, I hope you're listening to this. He he did essentially a whiskey 101. And, and I don't remember the specifics, but I know he probably had a Maker's and a Jack and a Scotch and a something else. And he walked through each one of those and talked about why they taste different. And and I can remember that moment was, I like this. I really mm-hmm. like this. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, that was that was kind of one seed uh, that was planted for me and how I got into this. I think there's there's two other important ones. Um, the second is is I, I when I went to the University of Illinois, I, I graduated high school from Sheldon, Sheldon Illinois. I think there was 15 kids in my class and, um, you know, I grew up three miles South of a town of a thousand people. When I, uh, where I grew up, everyone generally knew the difference between a corn and a soybean plant and knew that chocolate milk doesn't come from brown cows. But when I got to the university, uh, I quickly realized that that was not the case, that, that there's a big gap between production agriculture and, um, and consumers knowledge of what actually happens there. And so that, that was actually one of the, the jobs that I did for a few years out of college was teaching ag education programs around the Midwest. And the third was, I love to host, I love to have fun, and, and I love to you know, create experiences for people. So for me, Whiskey Acres w- was kind of a, a culmination of three, three different things. One is, is to be able to really kind of explore that, that um, moment that, that I, I had with, with whiskey and to create something unique. 
Number two was an opportunity to, to really create a platform and a location to teach people who weren't blessed with an on-farm upbringing about what we do, why we do it, and how we do it on the farm. And number three is to really create a consumer experience to, to merge all these things together, to have a conversation with our friends from the suburbs and from the city over a drink and tell the story of how it got there. You mentioned training and education. And one of the things I, I thought would be fun was on this broadcast to talk a little bit about some, you know, kind of terminology 101 for whiskey. And I was going to give you a couple terms and I was going to let you just, you know, give the definitions for the audience to get a little bit more in-depth knowledge as a consumer when you're out there and, you know, a novice like myself who many years ago wanted to get into not collecting, but enjoying whiskey on different levels from price to taste. And so I thought it'd be nice to ask you some terms and ask you to describe them. So if you don't mind, what what is a small batch? <laughs> that's, that's another one of those terms that doesn't have a true definition. And, and so uh, I, I have heard large companies call small batch products that are small batch releases have over a hundred barrels in them. I can tell you the largest batch that we've ever released to date was seven barrels. So it's all a matter of, of, of perspective, and, and there's not a true definition to that. I guess small batch, you, you really need to understand who that term is coming from to, uh, to appreciate what it means. But at the end of the day, you should never buy a product because it says small batch. You should buy a product because you understand the, the full story and the quality of the product behind it. Well, in that case, what is barrel proof? That's an easy one. So... Uh, earlier I mentioned that when you put uh, bourbon in a barrel, it has to be at or below 125 proof, 62.5% alcohol. So, um, our, our target entry proof into a barrel is actually 120. And so depending on, um, the life of that barrel and, and the evaporative losses that's known as the angel share that it has, and there's lots of things that affect how much and, and how, how quickly losses happen that include humidity and, and, and heat or, and cooling. You could, you could fill a barrel with 120 proof and five years from now, it could be 113 proof. It could be 123 proof. There's just, there's all kinds of environmental conditions that uh, factor into how that happens. But what typically happens though, is when, when a distiller is making a whiskey that, you know, they've got their whiskey in a barrel that's at a, at an average proof of 120, they, they empty several barrels together, blend them together. Then they add water to get it down to barrel or I should say bottle proof. So our standard, standard bottle proof is 87. I think a lot of the, the, the mainstay whiskeys you see out there are 80, some are 90. But when you see barrel proof, that means you have not diluted the original proof from the barrel. So you'll often see that somewhere between 115 and 130. So you're getting a lot more alcohol per ounce and, uh, and you often you know pay a reciprocally higher price because of the alcohol concentration, both, both from your pocketbook and the next morning's um, headache. Understandable. What is a mash bill? Mash bill is, is uh, essentially your, uh, your ingredients that go into uh, the, the final product. So our mash bill for bourbon is 75% corn, 15% soft red winter wheat, and 10% malted barley. We take those milled ingredients and add them with water, bring them to a boil to soften those starches, cool it down, and, and utilize the, the enzymes from the malted barley as well as some, some supplemental synthetic enzymes to convert those softened starches into sugar. So we've now created sugar from that mash bill. We add yeast. Those yeasts are put on this earth to, uh, 
to consume sugar and convert that into alcohol through a process called fermentation. After three to four days of fermentation, you have somewhere between an eight and 10% alcohol by volume mash. And you take that mash and you put it in the still and distill the alcohol out of it. And uh, that alcohol goes into a barrel and someday you'll have bourbon. And someday, like us, you can enjoy it on after five o'clock on a, any right. given evening. You don't always uh, have to wait till after five. Yeah, I was <laughs> just going to say, Tim, come on. When have you ever abided by that? Uh, good point. Good point. L- lastly, I'm curious about, you know, when, you, when you're tasting whiskeys and bourbons and rye, they talk about the nose and the palate. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So if we were doing this uh, over video, you'd see that, um, that some sometimes I could often be referred to as the nose. I've got a, a very nice Roman nose that, that indicates that I'd have a really good, be able to utilize that well for nosing. But the the reality is, is every whiskey and every barrel is going to smell differently. So when, when we're tasting it, the first thing we do is, is, is smell, smell a glass of whiskey at room temperature from a little bit of a distance. You don't nose whiskey or smell whiskey the same way that you smell wine because wine is generally between 10 and 14% alcohol, whereas whiskey is often between 40 and 60% alcohol. So you don't ever want to bury your nose into um, a whiskey glass to smell it because you'll, you will numb your olfactory senses uh, right away. And so, so the nose is really, you know, gives you an indication of what you're going to taste. Then the taste or the palate is often aligns with the nose, but sometimes give you some surprises. So for me and every palate and every nose is different. When I know something I'm getting, I'm looking for lots of the sweet smells. And then when I taste something, I'm looking for more of the, um, the salty, briny, cinnamony smells to, to, to complement it. But again, that's not the way you necessarily need to, to smell and taste, but that's how I enjoy it. You know, I, I look for the sweetness on the nose and, and for the, the more savory things on the palate. Curious, how do you prefer your whiskey? Three fingers tall, three ice cubes. Mm. I'm, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an easy way to measure. It is. <laughs> and, and the reason I like that is, is your first sip, you know, it, it's going to ha- be there before the ice gets a hold of it. It's going to be undiluted. You're going to get a true, a true taste of what that whiskey was un, unadulterated. And then when that ice melts, it's going to allow some other notes and expressions of that whiskey to come along. So you can really kind of enjoy that whiskey along the journey as it, as it dilutes a little bit. Do you have any pet peeves with people that drink whiskey and how they drink whiskey? For God's sakes, don't mix it with Coke. That's, that's <laughs> kind of, if you're going to, if you're going to drink a whiskey and Coke, spend less money and don't do it with my whiskey. That's, that's my number one pet peeve. Aside from that, do it. What, however you enjoy it. Is it all right that I do like a splash of ginger ale in mine occasionally? Absolutely. I call that a highball. Absolutely fine. But for God's sakes, leave the Coke alone if you're going to drink. You're going to drink anything that that our organization is. We don't even have it at our visitor center. Ginger ale. I was just going to ask that. We actually, we have a couple people who show up with their own bottle of Coke. And if you're you're that dedicated to the cause, then drink it. But I'm not going to tell you the Coke. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, you had mentioned off, off air when we were talking prior to recording, you had mentioned that today you had visited with your 100-year-old grandmother, albeit socially distanced and through a window. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. So seems like a pretty good day to see your, your grandma. But you know, um, 
what uh, a couple well not not long ago i asked her you know the secret to life and and if i could pun intended distill her answer into the three b's mm-hmm. um it's butter bacon and bourbon and, oh yeah and so I love all three of those yeah so you know grandma kate i think really can be an inspiration to us and and how we can consume all the things we love you know awesome. she's yeah, every t- there's there's been no no shortage of butter and and bacon in my my childhood with her and 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 my adulthood we've shared some wonderful bourbons and and it's just been been absolutely special. Awesome. Sounds like you have some good genes there. So. Exactly. <laughs> well, one thing we always uh, close the uh, podcast with is uh, you know when was the last time you said today is a great day? Uh, I said it Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, so we released our our uh, bottled in bond bourbon. So uh, we, we were, Tim, you were asking me a little bit earlier about definitions. So you didn't ask me about this one, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. So, so bottled in bond bourbon is a, uh, is a category of bourbon that was created uh, by the bottled in bond act of 1897. And in 1897, the bottle and bond act was the first food safety law ever created in the United States. And it was about whiskey. Okay, so you can tell you where, where our forefathers had their priorities, and <laughs> right. and the reason for this is um, there's a lot of lot of BS going on w- in the whiskey industry of of uh, taking taking high quality stuff and and cutting it with turpentine and tobacco spit and, and just just stuff that that quite honestly wasn't safe. Um, and mm-hmm. so the Bottle and Bond Act created some some requirements so that if a consumer was buying something called Bottle and Bond they knew that it meant a very speci- met a very specific list of minimum standards. And so those minimum standards, everything that I, I described to you earlier about, about bourbon, so made in the United States, 51% corn, distilled at 160, barreled in new barrels, at 125 proof or below, all of those, those stand. But then Bottle and Bond also has to be at least four years old from the same distillery, distilled in the same distilling season, by the same distiller and bottled at exactly hundred proof. Okay. So, so all those things being said, whiskey acres has been producing whiskey for just, just short of six years. We actually had a, an intended bottle and bond release in, uh, in April, but for all the, the Corona related reasons, we, we delayed it and, and actually released it on Friday, August 28th. Big deal for us. And, and, and a big deal for, for us because, you know, we, we consider ourselves a craft distillery, and, and I believe this was the largest bottle and bond release in the state of Illinois since Prohibition. And wow. uh, we sold a whole bunch of it on Friday. We sold a, through a whole bunch of it on Saturday. We did a whole bunch of it on Sunday. And then Monday morning, I got a call from my distributor and said they were sold out. And we got nothing. But Dang, you couldn't even leave some for us? Come well, on. I, I got a half a <laughs> bottle here yet, but uh, we, we got... <laughs> customers and industry professionals. Benny uh, wrote something and the, li- the line was something along the lines of uh, a new standard for quality and craft distilling. And that was a good day. Yeah. God, that was that excellent. Sounds- John and I actually talked earlier prior to our uh, coming on that we should have done this as a in-person podcast. Uh, it would have been a lot of fun. Yeah. I don't know how the, how that, pro- how that would work, but that would sound pretty cool. I noticed on your Instagram today that whoever is in charge of your social media posted that in 20 years, this question, in 20 years, will the country be run by people who are homeschooled by day drinkers? Well, um, they are currently, so. Yeah, yeah, true. Where can people uh, 
uh, our audience find Whiskey Acres on the internet so they can see if they can find it in their local establishments? Uh, what's your social media channels? We are distributed through in about 600 locations throughout the state of Illinois. I will, I'm going I'm to get on a little political rant here just for a moment. The state of Illinois currently prohibits us from shipping directly to a consumer. If you are in Illinois and would like to have the opportunity for us or any other distillery within the state to ship to you um, during, in particular, Corona times where, where you don't want to go out and get exposed, please, please, please talk to your, um, your state legislator and tell them how much sense it would make for them to be able to place an order and me to be able to put it in the mail. But with that said, we can't. We are, we are distributed at all the Benny's locations throughout the state. We're at many of the Whole Foods, a lot of the Marianos, and, and a whole bunch of, um, of retail partners. If you want to know where that list is, go to whiskeyacres.com. On the top of the page, there is a, uh, a link that says find us. Put in the zip code, and it will tell you the closest retail locations that are next to you. Uh, we also have a visitor center in, um, in DeKalb, about a mile and a half directly south of the Peace Road exit off of 88. Uh, we have made the decision that we're going to be outdoor only. And uh, looking, looking forward to the fall, uh, I can tell you the next two weeks, we're having about 10 fire pits show up. Uh, we're going to have fire pits throughout the property to extend the season. We're going to have a lot of um, uplighting in the trees to really just kind of make it a cool place to hang out. And I believe that every Friday through now through at least the end of September, maybe even through October, we have a food truck out there. So um, there's lots of places to, to get it. And, and if you, um, you can't find it at your favorite bar, restaurant, uh, or, or liquor store, grocery store establishment, get on our, our uh, Facebook page and send us a message. And, uh, and I will track them down and make sure that we can connect the dots. My part, I've uh, finished my uh, three fingers and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to possibly going to have one more of these before dinner. Highly Sounds recommend possi- it. Possibly. <laughs> Depends on how hungry my wife is. <laughs> well, Nick, thanks for joining us on the, the podcast today. We really appreciate your time. You know, for those that are listening, you got to check them out. Like Nick said, go on the website, whiskeyacres.com, and um, try to find out where you can get some. Uh, I've had it. It's excellent. And Tim, like you just said, well, I'm having some now and I'm thinking, John, I may have to bring, we may have to do a road trip. I may have to do a road trip up to your neck of the woods and uh, go visit it. For sure. For sure. Nick, have a safe Labor Day uh, weekend. Enjoy the kids and family. And thank you very much for. Hey, this was fun. Nick Nagley, thank you so much for joining us. Until next week, have a good day. Cheers, y'all. Be sure to join us next week as Jason McKinnon, Director of Technical Services for Vega, joins the show. He discusses how he got into the industry. He talks about training during a pandemic. And also he dispels the myth that press technology is taking the skills out of the trade. You don't want to miss it. Not Dead Yet podcast is powered by Mechanical Club Media and produced by John Masonbrink and Tim Ward. It is edited by John Masonbrink. Music presented by Jason Drum and graphics furnished by Wayne Rowe. Thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs>